Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have an answer about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. A lot of you listeners will already know I am a big Huddersfield Town fan, albeit at time of recording, I'm slightly apathetic to them right now. In today's episode, I'm interviewing a local celeb when it comes to Huddersfield Town because he is the journalist who reports on Huddersfield Town for Examiner Live. His name is Stephen Chicken. Stephen writes on all things Huddersfield Town, but despite training as a journalist over 10 years ago, the job he has with the Examiner now is his first full-time role in the industry. Before journalism, Stephen worked as an accountant for a number of years, doing journalism just as a side hustle. In this episode, we discuss Stephen's professional career, the struggles he had in breaking into journalism early on, work-life balance, and the mental health difficulties he had whilst working in finance, and certainly not enjoying it. We also discuss the pressure he faced as a gifted child, in inverted commas, growing up, the pressure he put on himself to live up to his own intellect and expectations, and learning a football encyclopedia age nine in order to fit in with the football conversations at his school. This is how our check-in went. Steve, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you for coming on Let Me Check In With You. Given the hard work you've done in repairing the relationship between the Huddersfield Town fan base and the newspaper, I was keen to get you on to talk about that, but also about your own journey and the man behind the five conclusion articles. Given everything that's going on at the moment at time of recording, mate, how are you and, and how are you coping? It must be good to get the chance to go to town games right now, despite how mediocre we seem to be playing. Although we did get a draw at the weekend against Brentford, so I was pretty pleased with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you've successfully called it five conclusions and not five things we've learned, which <laughs> really annoys me just to get off the bat there when people call it things we've learned. It's like, it's not things we've learned, it's conclusions. I nicked that from Football 365 because it's a good word. No, it's good. We're obviously, at time of recording, we're about a year into lockdown now. Well, just over a year. You don't like to say it, but you do get used to the behind closed doors games, which I know is... You don't like to say it publicly because it is completely tone deaf when you're saying it in front of people who can't go to games and would desperately love to go to games. But that is the honest truth of it. You do get used to it. It's nice to have that focal point and something to look forward to throughout the week. The international break was really tough just because it was like, I want to go to a game, which I'm sure everyone's been feeling for well over a year now. So I'm not pretending I sympathise because I'm not in the same position. But I do <laughs> I do get it. You know, I'd be really struggling if I, if I wasn't going to the games and... Yeah, that is the best part of the job is going to the matches, it's the match day. So to be able to to keep doing that is is a blessing because at the start I wasn't going to any of the home games. Mel was going to the home games and I was just doing the away games. So I lost half of them. But yeah, it's nice now to be going to all of them. Your journey is a fascinating one, mate, and I hope it'll educate a few town fans as well as the non-Huddersfield listeners. So let's crack on with the show. Like I mentioned in the intro, mate, despite working in journalism now, it's only been your career until quite recently. 
Before we dive into why that was, can you tell me how your love for writing or filmmaking and everything in between when it comes to journalism started? Yeah, I mean, the film side of things, not so much. That's only something I've really started doing since I've taken the job. But I've always been good at English. I I started an English degree at, at uni and I didn't finish that. I dropped out to go and do my NCTJs because basically I learned that, well, I didn't get on with uni at all. I wasn't ready for it at the time. You know, I was it was good for me to go to to meet people and I'd always encourage people although it's different now because the fees are so much higher than they were when I went (laughs) I started uni when it they just brought in the fees I think I was the first year where we were paying three grand a year and that seemed like a lot and I think it's multiples of that now but it was worth going to meet people I met my wife there met a lot of friends who I'm still friends with now at university but I didn't finish my degree because I learned basically that you could do an NCTJ without finishing your degree. And the NCTJ is the qualification that lets you get into journalism. So I went and did that. I was still living in Leeds. I was commuting to Manchester. I was absolutely, (laughs) I was going to say absolutely skint. I wasn't in relative terms. I had support from parents, but I did keep it hidden from them that I wasn't at uni. I think they would have supported me a lot more if they'd known. I had to borrow a lot of money from my then girlfriend, who is now my wife, which is lucky that that worked out, to be fair to get my NCTJ done because my loan didn't come through in time but I was commuting to Manchester every day and try to make a don't fair dodge but at the same time <laughs> I only had the money to sort of buy a couple of tickets a week so I was trying to make my my one ticket in those days for some reason if you bought a return to Manchester it would last for five days and the return was a month so you could make that if you dodged the uh the barriers because they were manned barriers in those days rather than automatic you could make a ticket last a whole week which I often managed to do and then I couldn't get a full-time journalism job after I completed the qualification. I, I wasn't interested in going into news and then doing sport, which if I had done that, then I think I would have found it a bit easier. But the other thing was geography. I think a lot of the time when you try to get into journalism, certainly at the very beginning, you need to just go wherever the jobs are. You can't be picky about where you're living. But I was because Nikki was still at uni. And then after she finished, we wanted to stay in Yorkshire. So it was like, well, there's no point in applying for this great opening in Bristol or Plymouth or Newcastle or wherever it is because we want to be in Yorkshire and you're really limiting yourself then so I ended up taking various office jobs and started training as a a management accountant when, when I was working for a software company in Leeds. After you qualified as a journalist you spoke there about having a lot of difficulty breaking into the journalism industry how did those knockbacks affect your mental health at the start? I think at the beginning, you're just glad to be getting opportunities. I was getting paid sort of 50 quid a game for or 40, 50 quid a game doing League 2, League 1 games for the Football League paper. So that was a regular freelance gig that I had every week. So this was 2009. I did my qualification and then... The company I did my training with was a college called News Associates. It's a specialist journalism college. And they have a company attached to them called Sportsbeat, who are still going. They're a sports agency. They they cover all kinds of things. So they sent me to do the track cycling World Cup, a World Cup event at Manchester Velodrome. So that was great. Got to interview Chris Hoy and Victoria Pendleton and Jason Kenny and, and all these you know Olympic gold medalists and up-and-comers who went on to achieve great things in track cycling as well. But the bread and butter was the football and I was doing I did the football league paper for I think about eight years and at the time it was just sort of glad of those opportunities you have to remember as well that I sort of dropped out of uni at the worst possible time because it was the global recession I have a few younger friends who are sort of you know 26 something like that a lot of them when they finished uni were able to get 
and not all of them and i think the fact that some of them did science degrees certainly helps because i think it's always difficult when you've got an arts degree but a lot of them went into good jobs or at least the beginnings of careers straight out of uni that wasn't the experience of people my age at all because the recession started what was that 2008 and we started uni in 2006 so my graduating class the friends of mine that did graduate were in 2009 so right as the recession was right in you know <laughs> its depth you know until the pandemic you would have said that that was the worst possible time you could possibly be leaving university so a lot of my friends were doing bar work or menial office jobs or admin fairly low paying dead end stuff just because that was the jobs that were available it was really hard to get a career started at that point so it wasn't unusual that in my group of friends that I wasn't able to get that career started straight away. It was unusual though for like the people that I was on the journalism course with. A lot of them did go and get jobs, but most of them got jobs in news, not sport. I think I only know one person who's now working for Liverpool FC who got a, a sport job pretty much straight away because those are really hard to get. <laughs> it's really competitive. Because of those difficulties, you trained as an accountant and you did journalism as a side hustle whilst you did accountancy full time. Looking back, do you think that was you perhaps clinging on to hope and wanting to achieve that journalism dream? Or was it something that you did as a distraction or positive distraction from a full-time job you didn't quite enjoy? And are you now glad you obviously kept it going on the side? Yeah, I mean, a bit of both. I needed the money as well. So I worked six days a week for about 10 years. You know, as I say, it was a recession. There weren't that many jobs. The jobs there were that weren't that well paying and I'm all right with money now my wife has always been very good with money but I was terrible with money in my t- in my 20s so I, I, need, I kind of needed the money to keep going but you know I was doing it because I loved it it was the best part of the week was going to a game at the weekend but you're right like it does weigh you down when you work in six days a week for I think it was sort of seven or eight years at that point we'll get into this later but I was going through a quite a lengthy and quite deep period of depression in sort of 2015, 16. And I was thinking of jacking it in at that point. I was thinking, look, I should concentrate on the accountancy. And I was thinking of throwing the football. I I thought I'll get to the end of this season and then I'll think about whether I want to keep doing it because I'm not getting anywhere and I can actually make a career that's going to make me some decent money if I concentrate on this. But, you know, it wasn't helpful to my mental health to be working that amount and yeah I mean I think I probably could have put up with it for I I would say I think you can probably put up with working six days a week for a couple of years but I think beyond that it really takes a toll that you don't really appreciate at the time until everything sort of you know the wheels come off and then it's very difficult to get them back on but I was thinking of jacking it in and then just out of the blue Sarah Winterburn from Football 365 which was my favorite site I read 365 every day dropped me a message out of the blue because I'd been sort of contributing to the mailbox now and then, not often, but I would send things in or send in things I'd written for my blog to Sarah. And she basically just DM'd me on Twitter one day and just said, do you want to come and have a meeting and we'll talk about whether you can do some stuff for the site. So I started doing bits for them. It started as week a weekly column. We called it The Last Defender. And this is jumping ahead, I'm sorry, but this is sort of how we got out of it. We started a weekly column and then we added the weekend shifts covering games on top of that. That was sort of the big step for me, the big platform that got me noticed and by reach and got me the examiner job. I wouldn't have got that job without this because I'd have, you know, I wasn't even getting interviews for that kind of job before. But just having that a bit of name value and a bit of uh, a bit of a Twitter following and a bit of a portfolio was really helpful to me. You said there were quite a few transferable skills between finance and journalism when you did make it into journalism successfully. Can you tell me more about that and did that help make the transition easier for you when it did come? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm completely self-taught on spreadsheets. I would wager that apart from the very clever people that can do macros and actual programming, I would put my Excel skills up there with anyone else. And that is really useful because at Reach, we're not using Opta data. But even if you were, whatever data you're using, data is not information. There's a difference between data and information. And being able to turn that raw data into information is exactly what you're doing as an accountant because, you know, I was a management accountant for a start. So I was involved in the the senior management team at the small software company in Leeds, Publish Interactive. It was a great place to work. Really really good to their staff they really looked after me during my depression which a lot of companies wouldn't have done you know i was there for god six years so you know i'll always be grateful to to them for their support but at the end of the day it wasn't the job i wanted to be doing but having to convert that raw data and numbers that i understood and knew inside out and try and make it intelligible to someone who to be honest didn't have one of the stakeholders who I was working with didn't have the greatest interest in the numbers and just wanted to know bottom line and trying to get them to understand no this number is important and this is why on a sort of monthly basis was really important I think that's sort of the main transferable thing but it's also as I say just conveying information and coming up with you know understanding not everyone understands information in different ways and you do need to have a bit of a variety in your delivery. We are both perfectionists, Steve, as I found out when we chatted off air, and it's definitely a blessing and a curse at times. How did being a perfectionist negatively impact your mental health when you're in the world of finance? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't good. I only sort of got half trained as a management account. I got up to certificate level, which is allows you to put some letters after your name. It's something. And then there's another level of qualification above that. I'd started that level before I got my current job. So I was sort of half qualified and more experienced accountants would always say like, you're way too precise. You don't need to be this precise, particularly with forecasts. I would do everything sort of down to the penny and you tell yourself not to, but you can't resist the urge to be like, yeah, but if I can put a number on this, then I should put a number on this. That's how I find it difficult to say, well, it's probably about 40 grand. Even if I know that that's true, I find it difficult to work that way because it's like, oh, but what if this one variable changes and then the whole thing has to change? It's better to put all the variables in so then you can just change them one by one. And I think that often isn't how it works, particularly for forecasts when it's rough. It's going to be wrong no matter what you do anyway, so there's no point in putting too much time into it. But, I mean, it is debilitating at times. It still hits me occasionally. So, there was, so for instance... Last week before the Brentford game, I was going to write, you know, oh, town sometimes like playing against teams like Brentford, though. And then I thought, well, can I actually support that? And you look at the results and it's like, well, they've got more points against the top three than they do against the bottom four. So, yeah, fine. But then you think, yeah, but I should see what the XG says because we always use XG for everything and try and prove our point. And then I looked at the XG. It's like, oh, I can't make this work. In fact, I think the opposite is true. And then ended up spending about an hour and a half going through and creating a spreadsheet with the XG of every single game and relating that to the league position every team is currently in and weighing it up against sort of long passes made and things like that. And this ended up being like two paragraphs of a preview. It was completely unnecessary. No one would have cared if I'd just not bothered with it. And I could have got a lot more work done that day. I probably could have got another piece or two done. And... (sighs) I'm glad, in some ways, I'm glad I did it because it's like, well, that's useful information to have for future. But there's also times where it's like, you don't need to go into that level of detail. And that was a sort of a minor one. But there have been times this season where I've been up, right? And there was a phase where I'd do the five conclusions the night after the game and be up until like sort of anywhere between sort of one in the morning and five in the morning doing them. And the nights where it went through to five, it was normally because 
I was doing a similar exercise and I'd end up, I was trying to make a certain point and felt like I couldn't make it without supporting it with the numbers. And then you end up sort of dredged down and it's like, this isn't even worth it. And you stop enjoying it at a certain point because it's like, (laughs) but once you've had that thought and it's like, oh, but what if I'm wrong about this? You can't then leave it alone. You have to sort of chase that thread down to the end, which can be a bit miserable at times. It's like, why am I staying up? I'm on shift tomorrow. Why am I staying up until 5 a.m.? working on this piece when I could have just done something that was 5% less good and it would have taken me three hours less. Let's talk about the journey to Examiner Live now because you make it out of finance and you secure this job. How big a moment was that for your mental health and your life? Did it feel like a bit of a sliding doors moment knowing you could finally leave one job behind and this other new journey could begin? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was a, a massive relief. I was actually in the 365 offices at the time, weirdly, when I got the call saying I got it. And I thought I hadn't got it because I'd interviewed on the Tuesday and then didn't hear anything until sort of the Friday afternoon. So I thought well, I'd sort of resign myself to, to having not got it. And I'd been talking with 365 about whether there was any possibility of full-time. There was definitely no possibility of full-time work, whether there might be a possibility to do some part-time I was weighing up my options because by then I'd done a couple of years of 365 and I was getting a bit of a name for myself. And it was like, well, could I get two days worth of freelance work and cut my hours back from my accountancy and keep both going, but do both of them part time? You know, just change the ratios, basically. And so I was starting to look into that. But then the examiner job came up. I got in touch with Tom Marshall Bailey to ask about that freelance work. He's now the head of sport, our boss on Yorkshire Live on sport. And he just happened to know about this vacancy that was about to open up in Huddersfield so we went for coffee and talked talked it through and I still had to go through the application same as anyone else I know I knew Tom a little bit we'd run into each other he used to work for the examiner as a lot of the town fans listening would know so he'd done the job before so I sort of knew him a little bit from then and yeah obviously got the job from there but yeah I mean it was it was a huge relief it is a sort of a life-changing moment really for me Huddersfield was still in the Premier League as well at the time it was apparent then that they were down obviously in fact the first game I did was the game they got relegated in at Crystal Palace so but it was nice to go in and do a few Premier League games I'm a Liverpool fan so I got to see the Liverpool won 5-0 but it's funny because you're not supporting Liverpool at all on the day you're there to do a job and you actually end up sort of supporting the team you're covering I think every journalist more or less has that experience but no getting to do those Premier League games getting to go to Spurs new ground for instance which had just opened just sort of that tail end I think made it feel even more special because I'd never I'd never covered a Premier League game before, weirdly. Not in the stadium, because 365 we're doing it from home. You know, we're watching it on the telly. So I'd never covered a Premier League game before the examiner. So just getting that made it feel a little bit extra special. But of course, just having a full-time job and being able to do it full-time and call it my profession was massive. When you arrived in the job, so the listeners who aren't Huddersfield Town fans know, the relationship between the paper and the club was pretty bad and the relationship between the paper and the fans was diabolical. The relationships now are so unrecognisable in a good way that fans largely don't kick up a fuss about it, which is rare for Town fans as we actually love and moan on some stratospheric levels. How proud are you of that achievement, which you have been a pretty big part of? You know, What's your secret? I don't think there's much of a secret. I was made aware of this when I came in. The company were aware that the relationship had suffered a bit. You know, I was briefed on it before I even took the job, that that was sort of the job, was to re-engage the fans. I don't think there is a, a secret. I think it's just... I think it's just being honest and being fair. That goes both ways. So... 
I think a lot of writers end up going one way or the other. They either go too far on the fan side and end up just slaughtering the club for everything. And that's not really right. And you get other journalists who go the other way and who are probably a bit too close to the club and end up sort of defending anything and everything. But you have a relationship to maintain with both sets. And I think sometimes people lose sight that you do have those two relationships. It's not just one. I think you just need to be fair to both sides and represent both sides and hear both sides and make your opinions based on what both sides are saying and what they're presented and and always keep those things in mind. I'm always worried that people think that I'm too close to the club. But then if they're terrible on the pitch, then I'll say so. If they have a terrible game, I will point that out. And if I think there's things that aren't great about the running of the club, then we will raise questions about that as well. But we will also let the club put their own side of things forward. I think that's all it is. It's just being fair and just thinking, am I saying this for shock value or or to be funny? But I think that's another thing I've sort of knocked off a bit since I've taken this job. I think at 365, there were times where I was a bit more mocking about players or managers, not in a nasty way, but just to get a laugh in an article, basically, because you're not attached to them and you don't have that connection to them. I can't really do that in this job. Sort of regardless of my opinions on a player, I can't make a, a silly joke about them. I have to be careful with that because... There's always a chance that next press conference, they're sitting in front of me and, and they've read it and they're not happy. I think that's probably the better way around, to be honest, because they are human beings and you do need to be a bit careful with that stuff. Being a football journalist is definitely not the easiest one when it comes to work-life balance, mate. Although you are privileged to be able to go to games when 99% of fans or 100% of fans can't, you're still giving up your weekends, weekday evenings, Christmases a lot of the time, holidays for your job, much like footballers do in the same way. How do you manage that when it comes to your mental health, family life, friends, and what is that reality like for the fans who don't know? I think you get used to it. As I say, I'm used to not having my Saturdays because I, I did it for years. Um, my wife works a nine to five, Monday to Friday. And to be honest, actually during lockdown, it's been quite good because we're not commuting. We're seeing a lot more of each other. We're both in the house together. So actually having at least a day a week, sometimes two days a week where I'm out of the house at a game or on an away trip, sometimes that's an overnight, is actually been quite nice. I think a lot of people have been cooped up together and they're sort of sick of the sight of each other whereas we've actually found a natural balance just through work commitments basically which is good you do just get used to it like there's nothing I'd rather be doing on boxing day than going to a game so it's not like I'm like oh god I've got to go to this match I love going to matches so the reason I'm working is because there's a match then great it's less good if there is a possibility I'll have to work a Christmas day shift one day I managed to avoid it last year but there is a possibility I'll have to do it one day which won't be great fun but lots of people work Christmas Day and don't have their dream job so it's it's nothing to really moan about but I think the thing that I find difficult and that I think probably a lot of my colleagues would sympathize with and agree with is it's difficult to let go sometimes if you have a day off because we have random days off just it fits around whatever the match schedule is so I'm off today we're recording on a Monday I'm off today because that's what fits it and I think I'm off on Thursday and then I'm working all weekend, then I'm not off until next Tuesday. It's just, it's all random days. But when you have the days off, and particularly when you have holiday, it's quite difficult to let go and leave other people in charge of your club kind of thing. It was easier when I was working alongside Mel Booth or under Mel Booth when I first started. So there were two of us. So obviously that was fine because you're leaving it. You know, Mel knows Tordesville Town better than anyone else. He did the job for 35 years before he retired last year. But now, and this is no disrespect to any of my colleagues because it works the other way as well, but if you are off, you know that someone who normally covers Sheffield Wednesday or Sheffield United or who does a bit of all the clubs is writing the Huddersfield stuff 
and it's like if it's not how you would have done it or you feel like they've missed an opportunity you do kind of have to you try and switch off but you do have to keep up with the news cycle so that when you come back you know you've not missed anything and just reading the stuff on the site it's like oh that's not what i would have done or oh they've got this detail wrong or they've praised Janino Bakuna for his consistency it's no that's not the story whatever it might be that is difficult and it is you know we'll get into this I'm sure but I am quite easily wound up I do sort of dwell on things and I do get cross about things if things aren't the way that I would necessarily like them and I do need a bit of talking down sometimes it's like, oh, why have they done it like this and then the next day it's like oh well it's fine no one cares <laughs> but it's like no they're, they're, they're ruining our credibility by running it this way it's like no they're not they're just doing the best job they can <laughs> like with the information available and everyone has different styles and different ways of doing things and different opinions and that's fine so it's learning to let go of things i want to reflect on your journey a bit now so even the last part of this topic given where you are now and where you used to be did you ever think you'd get here despite what you may have dreamed or was there always a hidden determination that you'd be able to succeed and do it i mean i'm still sort of relatively low down and by which i mean it's taken me i know you know as i say i'm speaking to someone who took what is it 10 years to get to this point so i know what an achievement and a step it is to get even to here but there are bigger jobs out there that i would in an ideal world like to get to one day not that i'm not enjoying the job i'm doing and the job i'm doing now is you know is great and if i end up doing huddersfield town for 30 years then that is great you know I, I love covering Huddersfield and the relationship we have with the fans and everything like that but at the same time I am an ambitious person I would like to go and work for a broadsheet one day or whoever it may be so I, I think there's almost a balance there because it's now that I am in and I've been here a couple of years it's it's almost like okay what's next what's my next step and it doesn't work that way it's such a a competitive industry and everyone wants those jobs there's only a few you know a couple of dozen you know a few dozen of them in the whole country everyone wants those jobs and it's sort of remembering sometimes I think football is a weird industry as well because most of the town squad is younger than me and you talk about them like they're grizzled old veterans and I think you sort of forget sometimes as a result that like 33 isn't that old and I've still got 30 years of my career to go and having been here for two years is not is not a significant amount of time at all it could take me another 10 years to get to a broadsheet or to a national or whatever it might be so it is try to sort of rein that in a little bit that's something i've had to do a lot the last few weeks is sort of rein that back in and be like it's fine if i'm here for for the next few years this is a good job you enjoy the job remember that kind of thing that sort of stop and smell the roses type thing rather than constantly being like why am i not getting this promotion now <laughs> There'll be a lot of listeners who are tuning in, Stephen, who might want to change careers, change industries, but have found it quite difficult or may have a passion that they want to pursue, but might be struggling to make their dream a reality. What advice would you give them from your experience? I think it varies from person to person. I don't know. I'm always a bit worried about this kind of thing because it's that first few weeks of the X Factor thing. Do you know what I mean? Where some dreams just aren't realistic and some people just don't have what it takes to do their dreams and you don't want to sort of you see it on dragon's den all the time as well do you know what i mean like that you don't want to encourage delusions but i think you know when you're good at something is the thing like i think by and large i think you wouldn't want to discourage someone on the basis that they might not have what it takes because you don't know so i think persistence is important and i'm speaking from a very privileged position here because you know i have had family support i come from a middle class family my dad is working class sort of worked his way up but he's an older 
older dad so he was sort of at the end of his career and earning decent money by the time he had me my mum was a pharmacist so she was earning decent money so I do come from a position of privilege where I'm able to sit here and say stick at it because I've always had that safety blanket and if you work in multiple jobs or you don't have the financial support or time doesn't allow or you can't spare the petrol money to go to a game if you are interested in journalism or whatever then it's going to make it much more difficult but I think if you are good at something then it is worth sticking at it and I think try and enjoy the opportunities you get where they come that's not to say you should accept unpaid work I think if you can accept unpaid work and if you're in a position to do it unpaid work is evil and immoral but kind of a necessary evil I think in a lot of industries unfortunately it shouldn't be but that is the way it is if you're in a position to be able to accept it then I think you probably should which is not what I think a lot of people say don't work for free I would say don't work for free long term is what I would say but I think it is trying as far as you can try and enjoy the work for what it is rather than sort of setting your sights on trying to get to x job or y achievement or this many number of followers or whatever i think it's nice to have goals and and things to to drive towards but at the same time you need to be realistic and i think the main thing as well to sort of on a practical level getting away from the mental side and how i would suggest trying to think about it is talk to people in the industry most people i think are happy to sort of give advice if you drop an email and you're pleasant and ask for help in the right way and explain why you want to to get into it then i think you will find people who are willing to help you you know if the first person you email doesn't then try someone else and just sort of absorb as much advice and information about how to get these jobs as you possibly can because that is an art in itself it's one thing being good at something but being able to find those jobs and get them is another skill and I think sometimes people overlook that. When I was at Doncaster Bells, did a volunteer press officer job for Doncaster Bells, the women's football team. And we used to get sort of work experience people from a university. And some of them would just sort of come and be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they'd turn up and we'd see them one week and then we'd never see them again. And they'd volunteer to do all these things and then you'd never hear from them. And it's like, you've got an opportunity here. <laughs> Make the most of it. And there were other work experience people that we had who turned out to be excellent and who I still follow on Twitter and still see them and and it's like oh you've actually taken this on board and you're going for it and that's that's really encouraging to see and we've had one or two at the examiner as well who was you know he's gone away and instantly Gabriel Ramsey is called if you want to give him a follow he's gone away and started a podcast and started a blog and started writing and I think he's still only a teenager but he's doing all these things and he's doing everything the right way and you know, sooner or later, it might take him 10 years like it did for me, but sooner or later, you would hope someone will notice that. The other thing is, I think, sort of finding your niche and sticking to it. So not to sort of toot my own horn or anything, but my writing is funny sometimes when I want it to be. And I think that is not a skill everyone has. So that became a bit of a USP for me. The fact that I, I was able to write funny articles because not everyone can do it. Everyone thinks they can, but not everyone can. You know, some people would say that I'm not funny at all and I'm full of crap here. But that was a USP for me. For other people, it's data. For other people, it's tactics or it's covering a certain club or it's covering a certain division. You know, there's another Gabriel Sutton is very good at covering the EFL, for instance, or the lads from Not the Top 20. They were sort of enthusiastic amateurs who started a podcast and now they're on the EFL highlight show. So... You can do it. It helps if you're a white man, <laughs> which it shouldn't. But that is the reality of sports journalism. And that is something the industry needs to look at and change, to be honest. That doesn't please me at all. 
you still need to work very hard if you're a white man but i can't imagine what it's like if you're not trying to get into this industry it must be insanely tough and the people who i follow who i follow one or two who are, who are in that position and who are struggling and your heart goes out to them and you just hope they get the opportunity sooner rather than later we've checked in about your professional journey steve i want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own journey so i ask all my special guests this question first walk me through your early life teenage years and whether looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the steve we meet here grew up in warrington as i say middle class upbringing suburban grew up with an older brother i've got a half brother and half sister who i see less of i barely ever see my half brother i see my half sister family events gatherings and you know we've got an okay relationship yeah i mean i I always did well at school from an early age i skipped a year right at the beginning so i missed year one and then they decided that skipping kids years wasn't actually the best thing to do so i repeated year four but uh, i don't remember that being a a source of genuinely don't remember that being a source of aggravation they must have changed the curriculum or changed it or something because uh, it was fine yeah always did well at school did all right socially I got into football because I was bullied a bit at school primary school and I basically got into football as a way to sort of have something to talk about and a bit of common ground with my peers a bit more but being me I sort of you know went into it way more than anyone else did and (laughs) yeah ended up knowing more about the football than than anyone else and teenage years generally fine until I got to about 17, I had a really tough time. My AS level year, I didn't really realise it at the time, but looking back, that was sort of my first period of depression. I had a lot of problems, and for me, it sort of manifests. I get very grumpy, get very arty with people, and obviously that sort of causes your relationships to break down and becomes a bit of a vicious circle at that point. So that wasn't good. I had a bit of counselling. The counsellor I had at college was rubbish, to be honest. She was useless. But I've had other counsellors since then who have been excellent. So I think that is sort of a, if you get the wrong counsellor to begin with, try someone else. Sometimes it just doesn't vibe. It's just one of those things. I'm sure she was good for other people, but for me, she was just wasn't right. And I went to university, as I say, and I had more problems at university as well. I had a bad breakup when I was 20. And yeah, that set me back for a long time. Dropped out of uni at that point and basically just spent a year I, I met my wife shortly after that breakup and bless her she had to deal with a lot of shit and a lot of fallout from that but yeah she thankfully was around to sort of help me through sort of the worst of that but I was basically just to say I was in bed for a year would be over dramatic but I wasn't doing anything I didn't have a job I wasn't at uni yeah I wasn't in a good place at all you know staying up late at night or screaming and crying or I was drinking too much I was fortunate as well that I had sort of a friend who was able to take me to one side and say basically you're being an asshole to everyone you need to cut it out because you're not pleasant to be around so that sort of helped and I think I do need that now and then because as I say because of how it manifests I do need occasionally for people to say stop (laughs) stop behaving like this basically it's regardless of what's going on it's not really acceptable so yeah that takes you up to when i'm about sort of 20 or 21 we're going to talk about alcohol in a second but i want to go back to what you spoke about being skipped a year ahead because you are a self-confessed gifted child in inverted commas as i said in the intro although you kind of when we spoke off there you almost had a hesitancy in describing yourself as one because of the perhaps social implications or maybe even the stigma behind calling yourself one can you talk about the positives first of being academically gifted and then maybe some of the challenges that it presented growing up for you in your mental health? 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's more of a benefit than it is a harm because, to be honest, I never had to work particularly hard at school. That's why I found uni difficult because that was the first, you know, they actually make you work hard. It's weird. But GCSEs, I'd got my A stars for English. I did maths early. I got an A in maths, did it in year nine and got a C and they made me do it again. I got an A uh, in year 10. And then year 11, I did my GCSEs. And apart from English, they're pretty much all Bs. But I just didn't have to particularly work for them. You know, it, it came easy for me. I suppose the maths sort of shows that there was a bit of work involved, the fact that I had to bump that up. But it does have downsides. I think something that i've had recently you know i was nominated for this award recently i got, I got bronze in the end which was i'm delighted with but you realize when you win that it's like oh i've or come third i haven't won it i need to get out of saying i won it because i didn't win it <laughs> but you get that initial hit of like oh great and then people congratulate you and then you tell your family and they congratulate you and then you tell a group of friends and they congratulate you and then i found i was wanting like more and more i just wanted to drag the congratulations out for ages and i don't know if that's just because it's like i don't know if that's natural i don't know if it's i think probably the pandemic doesn't help because i didn't get to go to the award ceremony or anything like that and we couldn't go out and celebrate i've quit drinking so i couldn't have you know a drink to celebrate so it's like well how do you celebrate this it's like oh get people to say congratulations a billion times and i think that probably comes out of that and they do say don't they you should never congratulate people for i don't know this is this might be complete cod psychology this might be wrong but like 10 years ago there was a big thing where it's like oh you shouldn't praise a child for doing something well you should praise them for the effort they put into it and the idea is like the effort is more important than the result it's very danny cowley way of looking at things the idea is that if you praise people for the result for the thing they've achieved rather than the effort they put in they lose heart when they don't succeed at things immediately so it's praising sort of determination rather than outcome. And I think that definitely that's something I lack. And I get very upset and annoyed if I put effort into something and it doesn't get garlanded with, oh, that was great. Thanks for that. Or well done or whatever. And it's pathetic. And like, I can feel myself and it's like, I am a bad person for feeling this way about it. But that is how I feel about it. And I there is that in me and I don't really like it about myself, but there is that sort of side to me and it, it is frustrating. When you dropped out of university, I imagine that was quite a difficult decision. Given the pressure you put yourself under when you were a child growing up and the expectations, given the natural intelligence you had, at that moment in time, did you feel like a failure? Yeah, absolutely. It's horrible. Those are like the worst sleepless nights I've ever had. And I specifically remember it sort of thinking about it transports me back to my wife's room at the sort of house share she was living in at the time in Leeds in Burley Park and just lying there because I hadn't told my parents and I never told my parents. They just sort of obviously they worked it out because they're not stupid. And I don't even remember. We just sort of like gradually sort of accepted and started talking about the fact that I had without them ever asking the question have you dropped out and without me ever saying it I made out like I was doing my journalism course on top of uni which was just a lie but that used to sort of keep me up at night every night was like that guilt of lying there thinking oh I've not told them and I should have told them and the knock-on effect of that was you know I was desperate to sort of ask them for money because I was taking this money from Nikki to pay off my overdrafts and things like that, but couldn't because then I would have had to, you know, admitted that I'd dropped out of uni and wasn't getting my student loan. And it just, I don't know, it was just stupid. I just made my life so much harder for myself than I actually needed to because I couldn't face up to the fact that I had 
failed at this and looking back I hadn't failed it just wasn't right for me it wasn't what I wanted to do and continuing that course wouldn't have been right for me I don't think and I'm sort of glad looking back that I took the decision I did because I think it would have been a miserable waste of time but at the same time what I actually did almost was a miserable waste of time in itself because if I hadn't had that sort of feeling and that guilt and that feeling of like oh I've screwed this up and I've let my parents down and etc then I could have been a lot more open about things and things would have been much easier for me and for everyone. When you had counselling for your mental health, like you said, obviously you didn't have a massively positive experience with it. But a lot of the issues you've had then and now have come back to you being a gifted child. Can you unpack that for me? And how do you feel now as opposed to back then? Do you feel more comfortable within yourself, do you think? Yeah, I still have days. I'm in a a group chat with a group of people and I'm just basically constantly complaining on there. And that's a bad habit of mine at the moment that I need to work on is just constantly moaning on about stuff that just isn't that consequential. This is sort of the issue that I've always had is this is something I learned from counselling. Sort of the most recent round of counselling I had when I was a bit older, when I was 27, was I have quite strict rules about things and that can be social things. The thing that was really useful was escalators were used to to train me because I used to get really still do to be honest but used to get really angry at people for not standing on the right on the escalators it drive me mad every morning getting off the train coming into Leeds to go to work and people wouldn't move over and this is such an obvious point but it took the counselor to say like it's not the same people every day so you are just going to be getting angry every morning for no reason it's not going to solve anything (laughs) And the only person who is suffering from that is you. And it's like, you can control how you react to things. That was sort of the big thing from counselling that I got. The depression sort of comes after the anger. The depression comes, generally for me, comes from the problems I create for myself through anger. You know, I'm not a violent person, but I do get angry and I think a bit scary sometimes. I find it difficult to hide my anger sometimes. And I couldn't even say how that manifest particularly other than i have a a stim which is i'd sort of i rub my hands together you can see i've rubbed them together to the point where it's almost like carpet burn on the palms of my hands that is something i do when i'm not always not just when i'm angry it's sometimes when it's like i'm excited or pleased or just nervous or whatever it might be people always think i'm cold Uh, (laughs) but obviously i do that i must do other things as well because people can always tell if i'm sitting there on my phone and i'm getting annoyed at something i've seen on twitter my wife is always like are you all right (laughs) and i think that is sometimes quite pronounced i forget that i'm quite big as well because i'm close to six foot and i'm a big guy but my brother is like six foot three so i don't think of myself as tall kind of thing and and it's like oh yeah i am actually quite probably you don't know me quite an intimidating presence in some ways if, if i get in the wrong mood so all of my problems all of my depression always comes out of like i've had a flare up and I've had a go at someone or I've had a misunderstanding with someone and I've got annoyed at them and then it's created problems and then I've got upset and then I feel bad about it for days or weeks afterwards. In my 20s, I was an absolute liability on a night out just because there would be like a one in three chance that I was going to create some kind of row with someone. And it was always start out, out of nothing and then would just sort of build into bad feeling and degenerate from there and end up with me getting angry at them for being stupid or being illogical or saying the wrong thing and then we'd get upset and then I'd end up being the one who got most upset of everyone and it ruined the night so that became a bit of a pattern and the escalator thing was a way to sort of trade me out of that and to make me see you are in control of the way that you react to things the thing my counselor said was like 
imagine someone like you're in the supermarket someone bumps into you comes up and like rams their trolley into the back of your leg do you react angrily and it's like well yeah i think i would it's like okay what if you turn around and it's a little old lady and she's just struggling with this massive trolley and it's just got away from it it's like well no obviously you wouldn't get angry at that so the way that you react is actually your choice you can choose to see things in a certain way where you're not letting yourself get angry at things and the escalator thing was sort of training for me every day uh, and was useful because it was every day like it's okay to just stand there what is it costing you like 20 seconds it's fine (laughs) and just learning to just go with it and it's fine nothing bad is going to happen because people are standing on the left hand side the other part of your journey we mentioned it a little bit briefly beforehand steve is your relationship with alcohol what has that relationship been like throughout your life how has it impacted your mental health and at the most difficult moments, has it ever felt like an addiction or just something you've struggled with consumption-wise for your physical health? Yeah, I mean, it's not a good relationship. I didn't drink until I was like 17, which I think is quite late in this country, <laughs> certainly where I grew up. But it's not a good drug for me. It's the long and short of it. And it's the one that's most available. So I've always just gone with it. But, you know, I think there's other things that would probably be better suited for me. But I've been sober for about eight months at this point. Not had a drink since last August because I was well i was drinking every day during the first stage of lockdown like i was drinking a lot anyway but i had quit before i quit for about a year when i was sort of my most depressed because i realized it was causing me a lot of issues and i was having those nights out where it would end with me having a pop at someone or whatever so i decided to quit because of that and then i gradually let myself start drinking again because it's like okay i think i've solved that issue and to be fair i didn't have any issues with it like that for a while but in lockdown yeah there was i was worried i was drinking too much anyway before lockdown and then was drinking a lot more after lockdown and then in august my wife and i had an argument i can't remember what it was about probably nothing and after that it was like oh do you know what i'm just not gonna do this anymore like i just don't think i can drink (laughs) it doesn't suit me and so yeah i've not had a drink since august and i don't really intend to ever start drinking again which can be difficult i've found it sort of like it's every time you go to every time you come up on a new experience where previously you would have had a drink that is when it gets difficult most of the time i don't think about it now but like my birthday was difficult but then you get through it you get through half the day and then you're like oh actually i'm fine and then christmas again the same thing it's like oh it's weird not to be having a book spheres but then you get halfway through the day and it's like actually you know this is fine and the next one now is uh is summer is seeing if I can get through a summer sitting in the garden and watching the Euros without having a drink. But yeah, I've been off it for a long time. Well, I say a long time, for eight months now, and hopefully that'll be for life. I listened to a podcast with Professor David Nutt recently, Steve, who was interviewing a psychologist called Dr. Gabor Mate, and he writes a lot about addiction and the reasons why people are addicted. Now, I know you said you weren't addicted, but what did alcohol give you as a boost or something that made you feel right? Because Gabor Mate is always very conscious of discussing with people who are addicted about what makes the particular substance or thing that they're addicted to make them feel right as opposed to what makes them feel wrong and then analyzing the emotional psychology behind that so how did it make you feel good or at the time think it was making you feel good i mean to be honest i think i i think i probably was addicted because there was sort of it didn't cause problems but there were problematic behaviors things like you know i hope my wife doesn't listen to this (laughs) but i would like 
buy an extra bottle of booze and then drink it in the car before I came into the house so that I could have had another drink and she wouldn't hide in drinking, basically, or hide in how much I'd had to drink, which was not good. I mean, I'm sure she knew. Like, <laughs> obviously, like, when you're sober, like, these things are really obvious. It's like, yeah, obviously she knew it would, you know. It's like I wasn't drinking Hennigan's whiskey. She would have been able to smell it. But, sorry, the question, yeah, what did it do? Yeah, I think because of the perfectionism and because of the sort of the irritation about things you know the escalator problems it sort of it takes the edge off those you don't really care about them when you've got a buzz on do you know what i mean adrian charles actually of all people did an episode of richard herring's last square theater podcast or rahelastapa where he was talking about this and he said like basically what everyone wants and what everyone wants from drinking is the feeling of having had a pint and when you get that buzz on and it's like, oh, I just feel nice. And you keep drinking because you want to maintain that buzz, but you actually just get more and more out of yourself. And sometimes drinking's great, don't get me wrong. Like sometimes you do increase the buzz and you, you're sort of flying and, and it's great. But I don't know. I think that is probably, it's sort of a, for me, it's kind of just dulling things and taking the edge off my own head, my own thoughts, basically. And being a little bit less perfectionist and being stop finding fault in everything quite so much and just enjoy things a bit more and chill out basically i find it quite difficult to chill out (laughs) which will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me but i do find it difficult to chill sometimes so yeah that that's what it does for me before we wrap up this topic and move on to the mental health chat steve when we spoke off air one thing that struck me quite clearly was you said to me quite casually that you've had some bog standard depression the odd suicidal moment but no extensive mental health history can you just provide a bit of context to that as i'm sure many listeners wouldn't say the odd suicidal moment in quite so nonchalant terms i have this weird i don't know i've had this with the doctor as well when you go in and obviously you're like considering methods that's not a great sign is it but like for me i feel like there is a difference between sort of a thinking about things and how would i do it if i were to do it i know that that qualifies as ideation and yeah obviously if you're having those thoughts you should go and seek help but for me it's like i am kind of comfortable with the fact that i have explored and sort of educated myself on those things because to me i was looking those up with the mindset but I'm not actually going to do this. I'm just curious to see what the you know what is out there. But then there are also moments where it's like the thoughts have gone further than that, and I've gone to the hospital. Basically, there was one day where I was. <clears throat> so we haven't really touched on this a lot, but like my accountancy job, I was that I was depressed a lot because I was you know I think looking back, I just wasn't happy in the career, and lots of things were wrong, and the drinking was an issue, and so on, and and the praise issue became a thing because I felt like the praise and the perfectionism, those two sort of needs came to a head because I felt like nothing I was doing was sort of good enough and people would tell me it was and I wouldn't believe them and so on. There was a day where I'd sort of went out and it's like, oh, like I might go to Class Olsen and buy a rope, which tells you how long ago it was because Class Olsen, shut down now, can't go. I liked that shop, it was well organised. But, you know, I'd identified what, kind of rope do you need and all the, all of these kinds of things it's like i know what probably where i'd do it and then got halfway there and like i wasn't like calm and joking or anything you know i was, just, I was sort of bawling my eyes out but then i got to sort of you know a street corner in leeds and i was like and i stood there for about like it probably in reality it was about three minutes but it felt like about like 10 minutes where i was like am i actually gonna go to the shop or am i gonna go back to work or am i gonna go home or am i gonna 
head to hospital and i went to hospital because that was basically i got my phone out and said like (laughs) i think i googled going to incognito and googled like what should i do here and they're like well if you're having serious thoughts then go to hospital basically so i did i didn't get you know sectioned or anything but they just sort of sat me down and gave me a cup of tea and had a chat with me (laughs) and then sent me on my very merry way with a leaflet which i find is the solution to all problems leaflets Many good tips come from leaflets. So that was probably sort of the closest I've come to actually doing something. But that was a while ago now, and that was sort of the very depth of it, and it was one day. But I had been thinking about it for a while. This is why the ideation actually is a bad thing, thinking about it, obviously, because once you sort of know, I don't know, maybe I did intellectualize it a bit and was like, well, I'm just doing it for my own research. But obviously, once you know it, you're then several steps closer to turning that into action, aren't you? So... That's why you should seek help from a professional as soon as you have those thoughts. We have come to the final topic of conversation, Steve, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests if they have time, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, and you can include or exclude the worldwide circumstances we are living in, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Generally good. As I say, I have my days where I'm sort of just moaning on and and probably just overthinking things i think i think it's easy and i will touch on the pandemic at the moment i think everyone's got probably a bit too much time to think which sometimes isn't helpful because i found i'll have mornings where i'll get really annoyed about something that's happened or something that's happened at work or something that i've seen on twitter and will go on to whatsapp and rant about it and then some breaking news will pop up and I'll have to jump on and do the story about it and then I'm fine after that. I think it's <laughs> I think it's just finding distractions more than anything at the moment is the challenge. What age do you think you were, Steve, when you first realised or became self-aware that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I don't know. I can't really put an age on it. I know that for some people they say depression or certain feelings physically hurt but I'm almost the opposite I'm very in my head and as it's what I mentioned earlier about if I get annoyed or angry about something I'm not even aware of what I'm doing and I still don't really know I'd have to sit down and say to my wife like say to Nikki like what is it I do when I get really angry and she'd have to tell me so yeah I think I've always been sort of quite in my head with these things. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite normal and insignificant and normalised? It probably would have been on MSN when I was about 17 with friends. As I said, I had that friend at uni who took me aside and said, basically, you've been a knob, stop it. And I've always been sort of fortunate to have friends who have felt able to do that and that's very valuable so it probably would have been with someone like that and then I would have gone for that counseling that as I say that counseling I had when I was 17 wasn't for me but it was just the wrong person it wasn't the counseling it was just that specific counselor it's always worth looking but yeah I think friends are really helpful I think maybe the key is try and spread things out a little bit if you're the kind of person like me who likes to complain and moan and go on about things I think try and sort of spread the burden a little bit would be <laughs> would be my advice rather than dumping everything on one person all the time because I think that's not really good for either party because you just get used to it, don't you? 
And apart from people standing on whatever side of the escalators that is annoying, because it happens to me in TFL when I'm in London and it's an absolute pain and I get angry about it as well. But apart from that, what other things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people might say, a sound, a sensation, a social environment. What can you tell me here? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I've, I've not figured them all out. As I say, it's the rules thing. So a couple of years ago, we were at a wedding, a friend's wedding. And the night before, we went out for a few drinks and a meal and things. And one of our friends said, oh, I'm going to head off. There was a market or something. She was like, I'm going to go and look around the market, but I'll see you. Like, if you want to go and grab some food, I'll see you in half an hour. So we all had a meal and we sat around waiting for this friend. And one of them was like, she's not going back. It's like, really? She's like, yeah, she does this all the time. There's no way she's actually going to come and meet us. I was like, well, we'd better wait anyway, because we said we would. And then obviously she didn't turn up. And I got really... I jumped up straight away and it's like you know ranting and then again this is where my friends are used to one of them said chick that's what people call me chick it's all right we're all annoyed as well but it is what it is and that was like genuinely this was two years ago so i was 31 at this point genuinely the first time i thought oh everyone else is annoyed but they're just not (laughs) not ranting and raving about it it hadn't occurred to me before that like People are just much better at internalizing their emotions than I am. That's the wrong use of internalizing. But you know what I mean about keeping things to themselves? It's like, oh, you actually are annoyed. Because part of the annoyance I had was like, why is no one annoyed by this? And they're like, no, we are. Like, but what can you do? So I'm still getting things like that that you would think I should know, but I don't. I think that would annoy me as well, to be honest, mate, because I'm quite an organised person. I don't like people being late. So, yeah, definitely. What tools and methods do you think you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Steve, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a bit of everything. I've been on antidepressants and they it's hard to say with them because that i think the effect of them is quite subtle sometimes and because they take a while to kick in but i think i would probably say they have worked for me at times they've definitely helped other people i know as well but the counseling was really useful the most recent round in particular was excellent i have to say like the escalator stuff and it was cbt is what it was so it was the first few weeks are a bit of a bit of a slog because you're basically just filling them in on backstory and then after a few weeks you start getting genuine useful stuff. So that was useful to me. I think I could probably do with a bit of a refresher on that to be honest. I might see if I can dig out my notes because I have been getting annoyed at stuff again recently as I say. And just talking to people, talking to friends. As I say, I probably do a bit too much of it to be honest. Probably have become a bit will jump onto whatsapp at sort of the drop of a hat where i probably should sit on things a bit myself first and calm down rather than jumping straight on and dumping it into a group chat but that is reassurance sometimes it's that i think it's nice sometimes to be able to ask like am i being stupid for being annoyed at blah 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 like that kind of thing is really useful sometimes because sometimes you just don't know it's like am i legitimately annoyed by this or should i not be dwelling on this at this point toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod steve we discuss it a lot and there's no right or wrong answer to this so for you what does it mean to you what examples of it have you experienced in your life hopefully in a few more pods it'll be in a very small minority but how do you think we tackle it as well well to me it's men pretending that they're blokey blokes and nothing gets to them and it's weak to have mental health problems i think things have moved on a lot over the last 10 15 years i think people sharing stuff people like rio ferdinand springs to mind for instance i think has done a lot to sort of help break things down and 
I think the public figures who do still have those sort of toxic attitudes do stand out now and do tend to get called out. You know, there's one with the Bolton manager, wasn't there, earlier this season where people quite rightly said, you know, you can't, that's not a very enlightened way of looking at things. So I think this stuff is getting called out more and more, which I think is helpful. But I'm really into my wrestling and like the Undertaker recently has sort of not disgraced himself, but I think lowered himself in the eyes of a lot of people by saying like, oh, the locker room isn't like it was in my day. It was better in my day because it was proper hard men and we, you know, everyone had knives and, you know, everyone was really hard. It's like, yeah, that doesn't really sound better than he was complaining that everyone just sits around playing video games. Then are all soft now. It's like, Taker, that doesn't sound better like in your days, to be honest, when wrestlers were literally getting murdered. And wrestling has a long history of people being extremely horrible, problematic people. And half the people from his era, when he first came through, were either dreadful people or died young. So can you not maybe see that? And I think that is a great example of it as well. Just sort of this dressing up sort of macho-ness as like old school values. Roy Keane does it a lot as well. I think he does it more for show than anything, to be honest. So sometimes I find it difficult to get annoyed at him. But that kind of sort of performative macho-ness, I just don't think it's helpful to anyone. It really gets on my nerves, to be honest. But thankfully, as I say, I think it's... Maybe it's the bubble I'm in, but it seems to be... I think when I was growing up, that was sort of the prevailing attitude. And I think things over the last every sort of decade on decade is getting a little bit better, at least from where I sit. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who would say it's not at all. And just finally, Steve, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think more people being open about the fact that they have been through things or that they have sought help or that they have seen medical professionals or even just saying, ah, oh, do you know what? I've been having a bit of a tough time this week or been having a bit of a crap time of it or I've been struggling with being cooped up or whatever it is. I think just sort of everyone being willing to share a little bit of that goes a long way to helping people see that everyone does have these issues and it's okay to talk about it. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you to all the listeners who've got through to the end of it. I want to say a massive thank you to Stephen for being my special guest on this week's pod and for checking in with me. I'll drop Stephen's social media handles in the show notes if you want to follow him, but I'll warn you now, it's mostly Huddersfield Town or football jokes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, listeners, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell everyone you know. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you like what we're doing here at Ben and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Please, 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 every penny really does count, so I'm telling you now. We hope to check in with you again very soon, and remember, it's always okay to vent.